From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is a ReSound Special. Mom, how can I tell if... I mean, how did you know when you were in love with Dad? Oh, I've been in love several times before. He was a very good-looking man. Charming, very intelligent, intriguing. It was us against the world. The world didn't understand us, and we didn't care. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio puzzles we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear on ReSound. To love is to suffer. To avoid suffering, one must not love. But then one suffers from not loving. Therefore, to love is to suffer, not to love is to suffer, to suffer is to suffer. Spending time with her felt like the best and worst thing in the world at the same time. Love. It's wonderful, it's torrid, and it is so universally confounding that even Facebook has a relationship status option that reads, it's complicated. And boy, is it. But regardless of how tricky love gets, we never tire of the subject. Au contraire, we can't get enough of it. So today on ReSound, we scratch that itch and bring you great stories of imperfect, impolitic, infuriating love. One of the most classic complicated love stories is, of course, Romeo and Juliet. Warring families, separated lovers, doomed future. Our first story has some similar themes. Except that, first of all, this story is true. Second of all, it takes place in the Middle East. And third of all, this time, it's not Romeo and Juliet. It's Romeo and Romeo. Well, the first chat with him was like any other chats in a dating website. His profile said that he's in Jerusalem, and he messaged me. He was a very good-looking man, charming, very intelligent, intriguing. He was white, blue eyes, innocent. (laughs) I was speaking to him in Arabic, and he saw my pictures, and I didn't seem like an Arab. He thought I was fooling him. And uh, eventually I told him I was uh, Jewish, and he was shocked and I asked him if there's a problem and he says no no he was not the first Israeli I talked to but they all had a problem with meeting Palestinian guys some of them they thought it would be dangerous to meet a Palestinian guy like maybe it's a trap or something we were chatting every day getting to know each other and uh, it didn't take long time to suggest meeting the next Saturday I still remember his face how happy he was I told him that you are in Jerusalem and I'm in the West Bank and uh, there is a wall between us that it's not a good idea to to draw expectations, like we cannot really go far with it. But he was so excited and he really wanted it. And I also wanted it. I uh, 
invited him to come to my house and he met my family they were surprised in a nice way like wow you're Jewish <laughs> later my uh, family talked to me and they told me it would be a problem if soldiers come to the house and find him in our house and uh, I agreed and uh, he stopped coming to my house and then my mother once asked me about him she said uh, how is he we don't see him anymore <laughs> but mom you asked me to stop bringing him home she said no it's fine it's okay if he doesn't sleep at our house, but if he just visits, it's fine. The same day or the very next day, he came to my house. Uh, he, he was like part of the family, you know. I don't know. We felt that they know that we have something special, but I'm very sure that they never thought that we are in a relationship. I really can't tell what would happen if someone... Uh, from Palestine knew if I uh, that I am gay people here in Palestine they say that uh, oh that guy was talking like this he should be killed or something like this I live in a big lie which is hiding my sexuality you know I told my parents a few months after we started going out. They they were very against it. They said that um, that I should think about myself and if I want to mess up my future with this. I was smuggling him to Jerusalem almost every week in the weekend driving through the checkpoint in full confidence um, because the soldiers, if you look Israeli, they let you go. If you look Palestinian, they stop you and they check for permits. Of course he had to smuggle me because I uh, didn't have permission to enter Jerusalem. And even when they signaled us to stop or to slow down, I was speeding up like with full confidence showing them that everything is okay, you really don't need to talk to us. And it worked every time. Everything in the city was new to me. So I needed really to, to meet people, to go to bars. I, I loved meeting people and being myself with them. Like, you know, because I have been hiding it for the whole of my life. So it's the time to use to, to make up those years of hiding. We were in a party, in a gay bar, and uh, we went home back to his home. It was supposed to be the first time uh, that he would spend the night in my house. We were very excited about that. And all of a sudden we saw a police car um, going towards us, and the police officers went out, out of the, the car and um, asked for IDs. They usually do stop people in the middle of the night, usually looking for drugs. I think they were a bit surprised to find a, an illegal Palestinian 
they asked if, if we were going to my home and I said yes and that's a felony to host an illegal uh, Palestinian they asked me for a permit and I told them I don't have a permit so they just took us to the police office in the interrogation they asked us how did we meet what were we thinking we didn't want to tell them about the nature of our relationship because there were stories of um, Israeli secret, secret services finding out that people were gay and using it as a tool to pressure them to cooperate if you don't cooperate with us we're going to tell your family or we're going to tell the Palestinian Authority and it was less an interrogation and more a warning like you can be friends you can be whatever you want talk on the phone go to see him in his house if you can go there but why bring him to Israel no you can't do it eventually I was released and he was taken to the checkpoint and dropped at the checkpoint to go back home yeah after that after we calm down a bit we knew that there was no other way so I would bring him to Jerusalem again for me it was basically love like I didn't want to hang it on the wall that oh we are a Palestinian and an Israeli guys who are in love you know but it also made me happy to like that we are doing something special you know And uh, at some point, I thought it would last forever. Yeah, we broke up a few days ago. It's very confusing. I cannot really separate the situation, the political situation from our personal situation. But the fact is that I'm the one responsible for having this relationship because if I don't come to his place or bringing him to Jerusalem, then we won't be together. And that creates a very uneven relationship. It's to affirm the power relations that we have as two sides of the conflict is to bring it to a relationship. It's not what I want to have. I don't want to, to reaffirm a situation that, is, uh, that I'm against. Yesterday was a very difficult day. He sent his friend to take his stuff. Okay, I sent the stuff which are his own, like he had a few underwears in, uh, in my closet. But he, he sent me my stuff. And they are all stuff I bought for him from New York. He never won this shirt. I really don't know what, what he means by sending me. Like he's erasing me from his closet and his room and anyway 
I am more and more really not sorry about him. We had a very big love. And that's a, a very meaningful thing in every in everyone's lives. My hope is that he gained something from this relationship and that that now he believes that love is possible in his life and that new opportun opportunities are possible. But I think it can happen only elsewhere, not here. And I really wish that he would find his way out of here. Of course, Palestine is, is my country and I was born here. But for me, my, uh, my home is the place where I am myself. I really don't feel that Palestine is my home. I, I, feel, I feel like a stranger in this place. I don't want to, to be confused if I broke up with my boyfriend because we just had issues or because of the political situation. I want to, to be it more clear to me. My intention is to leave the country because I had enough. Everything is against you, everything. The law is against you. The situations of gays and Palestinian society is against you. The cultural differences are against you. Your parents are against you. This separation is so deep and when individuals try to break it, they they wear out. I'm, I'm all worn out. A Jerusalem Love Story was produced by Daniel Estrin for the Vox Tablet podcast. I can't remember what day of the week it was. I know it was in the evening. She came in fairly late. I was just poking around and what I found was a suitcase under the bed. When you walk down the aisle, it is truly a leap of faith. You never know how complicated things can get because you never know what life will throw at you. But you enter a marriage thinking that at least you know the essentials, the basics, who your partner really is. Turns out, not always. In our next story, surprise rules the day. We were set up <laughs> by a couple of friends. I was... 38, not exactly young, but free and single. Penn was a close friend of my mate's wife. We were invited to her friend's birthday party. And we were kind of conveniently placed in the same part of the kitchen at the same time, several times that evening. Uh, I met Nick at a party. I'd not met him before and we hit it off. I was aware at the time that he was interested, and I thought he might ask me out. And I was very pleased when he did.
I rang her up a couple of days later. Uh, she very bravely came to see me for a weekend. Um, we got on really well. She moved in two weeks later, and a month after that, I proposed to her. It was very much a whirlwind courtship. We were just great friends from the, the very start. Um, and you don't actually find that many people that you click with that way. I met someone I thought was intelligent, was a load of fun, was very attractive, and whose ideas about life meshed up a lot with mine. So I think I felt I'd met somebody at last who I could comfortably spend my life with. You go into marriage expecting certain things out of it and sometimes you get them and sometimes you don't. I think you wanted very much to have a conventional ordinary marriage and of course that in the event wasn't ever going to happen. I can't remember what day of the week it was. I know it was in the evening. She came in fairly late. I was just poking around and what I found was a suitcase under the bed. I wouldn't actually have looked in it at all, um, except that there was some strap hanging out, which was red satin, and I knew very well I didn't have any red satin underwear. So I thought, I wonder what this is, took a look. Full of women's clothes, wigs, catalogues, bits and pieces, and I knew that none of them were mine. The first thought was, well, these obviously must be somebody else's. Either they're things that he's looking after for somebody else for some reason and hasn't told me about, or he's got another woman on the go. He kept his computer in that bedroom, and he was on the PC one uh, that evening. Uh, and I said something about... Um, she sat on the side of the bed and said, Oh, by the way, um, I want to know why you've got a suitcase of women's clothes under the bed. And I went, oh, right. And at that point, I think all of my own frustration with all of my own guilt at not doing things right, at deceiving her, all came to a head. And I thought, no, I'm just going to tell her straight right now. And it's going to be done. So I did. Um, and I said, um, I am a transvestite. I remember the first time I had anything to do with it whatsoever, I found a pair of my mum's old stockings in a drawer, and for some reason, which I cannot at all fathom, I thought it might be rather nice to wear these. And it was. So I did it again. And somewhere around 14, 15, you realise that you're actually wearing a whole rock of women's clothes, you're putting makeup on and stuff, and you, I suppose you think, how the hell did that happen? Because it just did. It, it's, it's not something that you plan to do. It's not something that you necessarily think, it would be good if I could do this at some point in the future. It just kind of happens. And when I was about 32, I'd actually put enough of a person together out of this, something that you could see in the mirror as an individual, and I called her Trish. And I've been Trish ever since but she isn't a separate person, she's me.
He explained it in terms of gender dysphoria, that he'd never felt fully male or fully female, for that matter. And he told me he had tried very hard to stop doing it and had discovered over the course of eight or nine years that actually the need to do it didn't go away. And eventually he had succumbed to the urge to get more clothes and start dressing again. And he'd been doing it in private on a Saturday when I was out. I know he felt very, very guilty about the fact that he'd been exploring this side of himself behind my back and I didn't know about it. But on the other hand, I could understand where he was coming from. This was something he'd been suppressing for years and years and years. He could see himself getting older. I didn't like it, but I could accept it. Not dressing. It's kind of like having one arm cut off. You're okay, but there's this gaping hole. You miss your expression of yourself that comes from being like this. And there is no other way of expressing it. We have a good marriage. We always have had a good marriage from the start. I didn't want to throw that away, especially over something that is basically harmless. It's not doing anybody any damage. He's not a freak. He's not a weirdo. We go through this guilt and self-worth stuff um, and start to think that we're not particularly pleasant people. So if there had never been a pen, I'm not quite sure what would have happened because one thing that she gave me before she knew, and certainly after, was a sense of self-worth that I didn't have before. Other Halves was produced by Dennis Funk for Shortcuts from Falling Tree Productions on BBC's Radio 4. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today's show, it's complicated. Here's something that's not complicated. Writing to us. Love letters, questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up after the break, an officiant, a couple, gathered loved ones, all the ingredients of a breakup? Stay tuned.
You're listening to a ReSound special from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Gwen Maxine. How to break up with your girlfriend. Get a girlfriend. Be together for a while. Know you're going to be together forever. Think you're going to be together forever. Assume you're going to be together forever. Start to wonder if you really are going to be together forever. Start having sex a lot less often. Wonder if you're drifting apart. Getting out of a relationship is even more complicated than getting into one. Tears, recriminations, ill-advised late-night phone calls. Let's just say that a good breakup, like a good divorce, is a goal few people achieve. However, the couple in our next story got together in such a torrid, pyrotechnic kind of way. They decided they could break up with no less fanfare. Producer Sharon Mashihi explains. Somewhere between 50 and 80 percent of every relationship I have ever been in has existed in the phase I call TTBU, trying to break up. TTBU officially starts the first time someone in the relationship says, it's over. And that initial announcement is just the beginning of a very long and excruciating process. I'm so used to a breakup taking twice as long as the actual relationship that I submit wholeheartedly to the suffering. And once you're stuck in this place, still bound but trying to break free, you can't help but wonder what incarnation is going on. To love is to suffer. To avoid suffering, one must not love. But then one suffers from not loving. Therefore, to love is to suffer, not to love is to suffer. To suffer is to suffer. Dead on, right? That's Diane Keaton in Woody Allen's Love and Death. To be unhappy, one must love or love to suffer or suffer from too much happiness. I hope you're getting this down. I never want to marry. I just want to get divorced. As someone who describes my relationships as bad, I've been keeping a tally of the relationships that look good. Like, I was once at my friend Casey's house, and I saw his parents dancing together in the kitchen. They'd been married 30-something years, and they were still holding each other, taking pleasure in being together. I wondered if, since they were older, they'd been taught different values about love and marriage. Like, maybe don't question things so much, trust that love can last. Of people my own age, there's only one couple I can picture dancing together in a kitchen somewhere 40 years down the line. My old roommate Claire and her boyfriend Aaron Finbloom, who we usually just call Finbloom. Finbloom and Claire told me that they want to get married someday and that I'd get the enormous honor of officiating their wedding. I can remember so clearly when they first met. Finbloom was a wacky but handsome guy from down the street who had a master's in philosophy. On their first date, they were so excited by each other, they literally skipped through the streets. Finbloom used to carry around an accordion, and he'd serenade Claire outside her window at night. Claire once wrote a poem and left it for Finbloom in his bedroom. And I don't mean a little note on the pillow. The poem, conceived on sticky notes, covered the surface of his desk, traveled down across the floor, and then up along his bookshelf and walls. It spanned the entirety of his room. Finbloom says it was one of the best presents he ever got. Hello, this is Sharon. Leave a message. Hey, Sherman. 
Claire. Um, Stimplum and I want to ask you something that no one has ever asked you before and no one will ever ask you again. So just give me a call back whenever, and I look forward to talking to you. Bye. A question that no one has ever asked me before and no one would ever ask me again. I'd been out of town for a while, and rumor had it Fimbloom and Claire were going polyamorous. So the message could have only meant one thing. Did I want to have a threesome? Suffice it to say, I didn't call them back for a very long time. Then I get this email in my inbox from Fimbloom. Here's Fimbloom. Dear friend, we, Clarence Steinbloom, broke up on the 1st of October, and we feel we must honor the death of our relationship by laying it to rest in the earth They broke up. My favorite couple, no longer a couple. It's embarrassing to admit this, but I was devastated. So, okay, back to that mysterious phone message, the question no one had ever asked me and no one would ever ask me again. Would I officiate the funeral of their relationship, their unwedding? In accordance with Jewish tradition, we hope to have the funeral as soon as possible. And so it is with great love, endearment, and gratitude that we invite you to our unwedding, Dress is formal, expressive, symbolic. Much love, Aaron Fimbloom and Claire Epstein. So what happened? Let me deconstruct this breakup for a second. I think Fimbloom and Claire's first Halloween together is the perfect metaphor for why they broke up. Claire went dressed as the BP oil spill. She wore a black garbage bag and then drew pictures of dead animals, which she glued all over the bag. Fimbloom was also interested in wearing dead animals. He was naked head to toe, draped in rotting raw fish. All that night when people were out for the Halloween festivities, whenever Fimbloom was walking down the street, everyone else would literally have to cross the street so they could avoid the horrible smell. Now Claire's not the type of person to say you're embarrassing me in front of everybody. She was proud of Fimbloom for taking risks. And here's where the major problem arose. If you don't want someone to change, but you don't want to be with them the way they are, well, what is there to do with the relationship but kill it? Dearly beloved, thanks for coming to Finbloom and Claire's on wedding. I'm Abe. I'm the best man. There's a lot of energy, a lot of emotion in the air. We are here because the two people standing before you have dared to reimagine breaking up. We're here because these two acknowledge that a breakup affects not only the two people in the relationship, but also all the people who are in relation to that relationship. From the first moment, the unwedding had lots of correlations with an actual wedding. It had been raining off and on since the day before, and people were nervous that it would ruin the party. Finbloom's best friend Abe flew in from Minneapolis to perform as best man. Our friend Richard, who photographs weddings professionally, was there taking pictures. There were about a dozen people there altogether. We were gathered outside the gates of Prospect Park in Brooklyn. I wore a long black velvet gown. It was October, and you could see it and smell it. The leaves were like bright yellow. It was so beautiful. You know, the height of autumn. Yeah, I was really happy that day just because I felt like all my friends were like coming together. I felt really excited about the next chapter of my life and also felt really grateful to Finbloom for working through this with me. But then seeing Finbloom was like this reminder of like, oh my God, this is so profoundly painful. And I think he still kind of didn't understand in some ways. I hadn't seen her in like two or three weeks. Yeah, she looked really beautiful. 
as I usually think she does when I see her. <laughs> she seemed very strong and definite. Before the unwedding, I had met with Fimblem and Claire separately to prepare for my speech. I asked each of them what went wrong, and I took notes. Claire. It's as if being with Fimbloom, I have to constantly be in relation to the smell of rotting fish. Fimbloom. Claire wants to have baby, does not see me as dad. Claire. I love Fimbloom. I absolutely don't want him to change. That's why I have to leave. Fimbloom. This breakup is not a consensus. The hardest part for me was, was, I think, when I did the most crying was probably during when the text messages were read. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to approach Finbloom one by one and whisper your message into his ear. For one part of the ceremony, Finbloom designed a ritual to purge himself of all the sweet nothings Claire had whispered to him via text message. He typed them up, printed them, and deleted all record of them. He has printed them out, and they are deleted from his hard drive. He has been Everyone took turns uh, kneeling down on the ground, whispering the text messages into my ear. Let's start with Josephine and go around. I'm looking at the moon. Finn Bloom, I'm sorry I couldn't hear you earlier, but I'm ready to talk about having a family with you. I guess the ones that were either funny or sweet, and I kind of didn't realize until the last minute, erotic. <laughs> uh, no, read all the messages that you have. I love it when you get out of the shower and your towel falls and you see me watching you. I love you. I always want to be watching you. There were some that I cried and some that I laughed. I mean, some of them were just really full of heart throb and, and pain. After they were all read to me, we put them in a, in a little chalice and burned them. And then I played a little short song on the harmonica. There'd be no record of their existence after that, except, I guess, in the collective memory of the people who came to the unwedding. Fimbloom and Claire will miss spooning each other's bodies. Claire will miss how everything she ever did with Fimbloom had a heightened sense of meaning. Finbloom will miss how yes-saying Claire is and how affirmative it is to be around her. Finbloom will miss Claire's smell. Finn, please lean into dear Claire and take a look. At that point in the ceremony, Finbloom leaned into Claire. I looked around and most of the guests were crying. It was as if they were all mourning breakups from their own lives or were getting to say goodbye to the ghosts of relationships past. A breakup is seen as a failure of a relationship. And there's like certain things that we're comfortable seeing a beginning, middle, and end for. You know, I mean, I'm proud of people for having funerals. I mean, can you imagine if like we didn't have funerals and didn't talk about death at all? And just like one of your colleagues just like stopped showing up to work one day and you were like, oh, what happened to him? And everyone was like, I don't know. <laughs> you can just go out and drink with friends and go like, you know, pick up chicks after you break up. And that's a way of being with people. But the idea that you're going to be with people and be sad with those people about 
this person is like something else. And that it's really like healthy because like when the pain's released, it's released simultaneously with this idea of here's all these other people that can like fill the gap, you know, fill the gap of like who's going to love me now. For about three years, Claire has been in a relationship with a man who has a very particular embrace. I hope that every single one of us has had the great fortune at one time or another of being embraced by Finn Bloom. Claire would like each of you to consider the particular quality of a Finn Bloom embrace. And if you don't remember exactly what it's like, just imagine it. Guests took turns giving Claire a big, long hug, trying to emulate Finn Bloom's way of hugging. Because I think that that's actually one of the things that Finn Bloom does really well. He gives like really strong hugs. This time, why don't we go around this way? Claire stood at the front of the group with people lined up to hug her one by one. She looked like a bereaved widow receiving condolences at a funeral. It was as if each hug was an unspoken, I'm so sorry for your loss. I mean, the best funeral that I ever went to was the funeral of my childhood friend's grandfather. And I, like, I left that funeral feeling like I needed to like honor this person who had died by living a really good life. And I think that ideally that's what a funeral does. And I think ideally that's what the unwedding might have done for people who attended it. The ceremony ended with Claire and Finbloom walking out of the park alone in separate directions. I guided the guests in a procession of their own, humming as we left the park. And there was this distinct question or feeling in the air that hung over everything. The event seemed so right. If they could do something like this together, with such togetherness, why were they breaking up? Oh yeah, a lot of people like said that to me when I told them about what we were doing. They were like, you guys are doing this amazing thing. Like, you guys can't break up. <laughs> but neither me nor Claire at any point in the past three years ever imagined that we would not remain friends. Becoming friends. It is one of the most dangerous things you can say at the end of a relationship. Let's just be friends. That phrase alone has accounted for many of the years in my life that I've spent in TTBU trying to break up. Because when you see somebody you used to sleep with, even if you don't really like them that much anymore, it's just so easy to, you know, accidentally fall back into old habits. In the biblical sense. Maybe the trick is to take a vow in front of your community. Insist that you really mean it, that under no circumstances will you revert back to a romantic relationship. You want to be friends with this person, not because you don't love them anymore, but because you do love them. You know, it's not an empty gesture toward like, oh, maybe we can still be friends. It's like, okay, how do we become friends? So what's going on now? What's, what's the state of you and Claire? So it's three months later. Uh, things are indeterminate a little bit. <laughs> oh, it's so confusing. Um, I mean, obviously I remember feeling like this is so over. Like, us being in a relationship is, it's not a reality like I can continue with. 
I'll just say that, like, in the time since the unwedding, Finbloom has just really been great. <laughs> you know, we have hooked up a little bit. I... Did you want me to give a different version of the story? No, no, no. I want the truth, but I, I want to also express that uh, as the officiator, I suppose if you had gotten married, if I were the officiator of your wedding and then you got a divorce, I would have been pissed. Yeah. As the officiator of your unwedding funeral, it is a little bit annoying to me that it was just like a fun thing that didn't count. I understand you being annoyed. I don't think that is the reason why you should be annoyed. I think you should be annoyed because the ritual itself was sort of like intended to be eternal. But just because it's not doesn't mean that it was sort of just a fun thing. I mean, at the time, it felt absolutely real, necessary, eternal, and very meaningful and serious. In some ways, I feel like the unwedding like purged out a lot of the negativity and replaced it with something positive, which paradoxically makes me look back and then question everything. When Claire and Finbloom first told me about the unwedding, I thought it was a brilliant idea. One of the things that I admire most, and what the unwedding represents, is the utter lack of embarrassment the two of them felt for one of life's most inevitable occurrences, death. You know in the movies when a slapstick actor is dying, and he keeps lifting his head up one more time to say one last thing? I love that guy who refuses to die. He should want to live. And when you've loved someone with all of your heart and shared a piece of your life with them, you shouldn't want to let them go. The next time I'm stuck in breakup purgatory, instead of beating myself up about it, I might breathe a sigh of relief that the first time I tell someone it's over, it doesn't have to be over right then and there. We might have months ahead of us ending this thing together. Maybe even years. At times, proudly with our heads held high, and at other times sheepishly, waking up beside each other after another night of questionable decisions. For the record, as of this recording, Fimbloom and Claire are completely stuck in TTBU. I don't want to get over you I guess I could take a sleeping pill And sleep at will And I'll have to go Unwedding was produced by Rachel Simone James and Sharon Mashihi for KCRW's Unfictional. Coming up after the break, a torrid love story gone wrong. Then right. In between, eight years. Stay tuned.
You're listening to a ReSound special from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm Gwen Maxide. You don't seem to understand what love is really about. You young punks go to the movies a couple of times, do a little necking, and you think you're in love. When it comes to your first love, every sound, smell, and sensation crackles and pops with such sparkle and shine, the sheer glare of it all can light your way or damage your retina. Sometimes it does both. In our next story, a young couple's relationship starts out as a source of pleasure, becomes a source of pain, and eventually turns out to be a lifesaver. Due to the incident, my memory has been damaged, but I'll give it my best shot. My name's Tom McMorrow, and in high school, I was very lonesome, very depressed. I was uh, what many people would consider to be gothic. I dressed in all black, I had a spiked leather belt, and I was a very sad young man, angry, very angry at the world. My name is Courtney Coyne. Um, the first time I remember meeting Tom, I was this little 15-year-old girl. I'd just started my sophomore year at Princeton High School, and Tom was sitting at a desk, and it was very one of those very juvenile high school moments of, hey, that guy is kind of hot. I'm going to sit next to him. <laughs> when I met Courtney, it felt like we were partners in crime. It felt like we were the modern-day Bonnie and Clyde. It was us against the world. The world didn't understand us, and we didn't care. But spending time with her felt like the best and worst thing in the world at the same time. We were two very sad people drenching in each other's tidal wave of despair constantly, and the calm before each of the tidal waves that washed over was wonderful, you know, but when those tidal waves sucked you down and pulled you under, it was rough. It was very hard to have a mature discussion about anything. You know, everything ended up in a screaming match and somebody stomping off and, you know, the other one chasing them. Our relationship continued downhill rapidly, and in early December, it had been a horrible rainy day. I mean, just miserable, the cold kind of rain that just soaks you absolutely to your bones. And I had gone home, and we often talked at night um, about everything, our relationship, religion, sex, the world. And I said, do you think this relationship is working? And she said, no. And it dropped like a hammer and just, uh, it crushed me. I decided that was it. I was 16, the love of my life said that things aren't working, there was just nothing left for me if I couldn't make it work with her. I hung up the phone and it was completely impulsive. I walked into my bathroom and without thinking, I just went over to the medicine cabinet, saw the 400 count bottle of aspirin and said, bottoms up. I took them all down as fast as I could and I booted up my game console and just started playing video games. I decided in between to type out a suicide note, folded it up, put it in my pocket, 
and just waited. It, it started as what I thought was just a normal night, you know. Um, Tom gave me a phone call and uh, he asked me, how do you think our relationship is going so far? And I said, I don't think it's going very well. And uh, I didn't hear anything from him for a few moments. So I said, this doesn't mean I'm breaking up with you. I still didn't hear anything for a few moments. And then he said, can I call you back? And I, you know, I didn't think twice about this because we were in high school. You know, I figured his parents probably wanted him to do something and he'd call me back when he was finished doing what they needed him to do. So I hung up the phone and um, I continued going about what I was doing. And it was a short while after that, I got a phone call back and I answered and he said, to me, the last thing I wanted to do before I die is hear your voice. She lost it. What have you done? Where are you? Where are you? I wouldn't tell her. Finally, I decided, just just let me die in peace. Is that so hard? I don't want my last moments on earth to be you badgering me about where I am. So I said, I'll see you on the other side someday. And I just clicked off the phone and went back to playing my video games. About 10 minutes later, the ambulance arrived and the paramedics came in and said, you're coming with us. And I said, no, I'm not. So they picked me up and they just carried me in the ambulance. This is the part that is very difficult for me to talk about. I got very sleepy, you know, I felt people shaking me. I felt people looking in my eyes with flashlights, but it was all starting to blur out. I, I was shutting down. I was dying. And I went. I died. My heart stopped. And I woke up in a field. It was springtime. It was the most beautiful day you could imagine. There was no sun, but it just felt like that warm sunshine feeling when you stand outside in spring and it just radiates on your skin. And I knew inside that there was no way that this was a dream. I've dreamt before and that was not what this felt like at all. I realized in that moment that I don't want to leave this earth just yet. The tactile feeling of what it was like to lay in the grass on a warm spring day, that I would never feel that again, that this was the last chance that I would ever get to feel that. It was the smallest things in life that I would miss. I woke up in the back of an ambulance. It felt like someone had been punching me with a baseball bat. And the paramedics were like, that. we were doing chest compressions. You were dead for two minutes and change. You know, they said, we, we almost lost you. After I woke up, life was hell. You know, I thought I'd wake up and everything would be fine because I made the right choice, and that's just not what happened. 
after that night, you know, I got one simple update from Tom's father. You know, I went up to him and I said, Mr. McMorrow, how is Tom doing? And he said, well, Tom is fine, but you're never allowed to see each other again. It was certainly something that was so devastating to me that I had to lock those emotions away. That was the only way that I could force myself to not think about him so that I didn't have to sit there and drive myself insane with depression over the fact that I had lost the love of my life. My parents took me out of Princeton High School. I went to alternative schools for a while and multiple therapists. And after years of hatred, of sadness, I finally let it go. I moved on. And by this point, it had been eight years since I had last heard heads or tails from Courtney. Over the years, there were times that I definitely wondered, well, here's where I am in my life. I wonder what Tom's doing. You know, where is he at? You know, how is he doing? And then I happened to be circling around on Facebook, and I found Tom's Facebook profile. So I I, I clicked on his profile, and I, I started looking through the pictures, and I think I backed away from his profile page a couple of times before I finally sent him a friend request. And I was like, oh, wow, I I haven't thought about you in forever. Um, And we started talking and I said, look, we can say we're over this as much as we want, but until we see each other, we're never going to be over it. I've grown as a person, you've grown as a person, we're not who we were when we were 16, and I want to put this to bed, I want this to be done. We need to see each other for this to finally be over. We made plans to uh, meet over at his house on a day that no one was home, it was just him, and I ended up driving over to his house, parked in his driveway, and that's when my heart started pounding and I was shaking. I was incredibly nervous. I was out of my mind with nerves. And I walked up to the front door. She rang the doorbell. And he opened the door. I opened the door and and my my heart heart just just stopped. I forgot how to breathe for a few seconds. I forgot how to breathe for a good, good few moments. All of those emotions came rushing back. Everything came rushing back. And I went, I'm still in love with you. And how long have you two been together now? In June, it'll have been uh, two years. And I can legitimately say I do hope she's the person I spend the rest of my life with. We were bonded through a very, very tragic experience. And as strange as it sounds, I didn't really view that as the worst part so much as the worst part was 
the following seven years of never seeing each other. Do you, do you, do you ever worry about what, what would happen if you guys broke up again? I guess, and and this might sound a little cocky, but I just can't imagine us breaking up. I just don't feel like I have to be afraid of that happening. I do believe that people can be destined to be together. There are people who are on a pathway together. And even if they're not together at the time, that their paths will definitely meet later in life. We've often said, what else can happen? I killed myself for you. We went eight years without talking. Everything else is small potatoes. There's not much else that life can throw at us. A Second Chance was produced by Mira Burt-Wintonic and Jonathan Goldstein for Wiretap on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. This Resound Special is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors, including Paula Kahn. Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago and is now an independent nonprofit arts organization. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound, radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.